Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Human beings repeat two critical mistakes every day and every hour. First, we live each day of our life as though we are going to live forever. Second, we make life and death choices at every moment without having all the facts. I don't mean the facts about our life or the narrow parameters of the decisions we think we understand. I mean the boundless fact of the Alpha and the Omega. Each day, we make careless choices about permanent things on the basis of our very temporary and limited point of view. In the Gospel of Mark, this narrow point of view leads to human complacency about the urgency of the Gospel to the nations. Like a wise parent, Jesus intercedes on our behalf. My son, you do not have all the facts, so you are going to have to trust me. The time to act is now. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verses 21 to 31. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 194 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week, we made a very difficult point about verse 20, that the Lord is shortening the days because he wants to make sure there's someone left to continue carrying the message forward. And just to continue that theme and help our listeners understand that we're not pulling this out of thin air. It relates very much to the concept in the prophetic tradition of the remnant. Whenever the city is destroyed, whenever something terrible happens, God out of mercy always spares a remnant. But that remnant is there to bear witness to the fact that God is not mocked and that he executes his judgment and that his justice is swift. And then as the remnant with that knowledge, having seen what accountability to the Lord looks like, they are there to carry the message forward. I love the discussion between Moses and the Lord in Exodus because the Lord is contemplating completely eliminating the people. And Moses says, but you know what? Lord, if you eliminate the entire people, the other nations are going to mock you saying you couldn't save them. So unfortunately, Lord, I know you want to wipe them out completely. You can't wipe them out because then everyone's going to make fun of you. And the Lord relents and decides not to destroy everybody. But the message that goes forward is that the Lord is not mocked. As you say, Father, he is able to save them even though they're nasty, even though they're in the desert, even though they were under Pharaoh, he can save them under any circumstances. And this is really what's important. But as Father Paul Tarazi always reminded us, if you have the remnant of a sheep after a wolf comes through, you have an ear and a hoof left over, it's not good news. 
All it means is that there used to be a sheep here and I can prove it. All you need to do is watch American television to understand this point about the remnant. Because every time a criminal confronts his enemy and something terrible happens, or a Wyatt Earp figure in an old western confronts the bad guys, they always leave one person after the shootout or after the attack. They leave one guy alive to deliver a message. That's how this functions literarily. So once you understand this, you see again that everything points back to the gospel being preached in Mark to all the nations. We studied this exactly when we were talking about Job. All the children are destroyed. Only one servant survives. And he says, so that I could come and tell you. Exactly. Now, that has something to do with the commandment to be fruitful and multiply in Genesis. And we've discussed this also, that even though, as a character, Job hasn't received the Torah, just as the addressee of Job is aware that God allowed Satan to persecute Job, the addressee is also aware of the Torah because Genesis comes long before Job. It's very important to think of these things this way so that you realize this deeper point that everything, including what's happening to Job, is being used to testify ultimately to what God is saying in the Pentateuch. This is not a new thing. This happens over and over and over again, this pattern. You have it in Genesis again with the flood. Why didn't God wipe everybody out? Because he was merciful. But what's the purpose of those who were left? To testify to God's mercy and his promise that he would not cause another flood. It happens over and over again. So once you begin to absorb scripture in this way, you don't get caught up in these silly theologies about who's elect and who's not elect and what's going to happen and who's going to be snatched up and who's going to be left behind. You're missing the point entirely. Well, as we talked about last time, you're irrelevant. Only the words that God puts in your mouth are relevant. And if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. Do not trust him. If someone comes to your town in Deuteronomy, I feel like Mark read this and decided to write a book. If a prophet comes to your town and works signs and wonders, and then what comes out of his mouth contradicts the Torah, you have to cast him out. So don't believe all these Messiah figures. Who are the Messiah figures? Please, again, stop going to Hollywood and inventing apocalyptic stories about the end times. Because the false Christ could be your boss at work who tells you money is more important than anything in life. The false Christ could be a teacher in your church who wants to talk about their experience of the Holy Spirit instead of talking about the content of the text. For heaven's sake, if the martyrs talked about their experience of God... We would all still be under the boot of Caesar. So let's go back to the basics. Anyone who opens their mouth, you have to test them against the text. And then you won't be led astray. But don't believe anyone. Least of all, don't believe me and Richard. Read the darn text. This was the point that we made earlier when Jesus was speaking against the scribes and the Pharisees because Jesus would always justify what he was doing with reference to the text. So don't believe, don't put your trust in the person who says this is the Christ because there's only one word that's allowed to judge whether this is the Christ or not in that scripture. 
So if someone says this is him or that's him, why would you believe them? You only believe what scripture says. The text is the authority. The text is the only litmus test against which everything is measured. I mean, sometimes we get comments and questions that challenge us on the base of this person who said that or that person who said another thing. But very rarely do we get a challenge that says, but this is what the text says. People care more about their memory of what they thought they heard someone say at some point rather than just go to the text and say, here's what's written. I invite any listener to challenge us with what is written in the text. But what so-and-so they think might have said about the text, I'm less interested. We've gotten one or two questions where a person said, where were you seeing this in the text? Or can you remind me where you pulled this from the text? Or what about this use of this word? We've gotten some good questions along those lines. But more often, people hear it and they react to it on the basis of their reaction. And that's problematic. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And here, again, I feel like Mark was sitting down one day sipping Turkish coffee by the Sea of Galilee, reading Deuteronomy and said, hey, I need to write a book because this verse in Deuteronomy is fantastic. If a prophet comes to your city and works signs and wonders, but what comes out of their mouth contradicts the Torah, then you have to put them out of the city because they're a false prophet. This theme keeps coming up in Mark and it's not by chance. The text, the text, the text. And it's also significant that it can lead astray the elect. Just because you're the elect doesn't mean you're safe, doesn't mean you're good. As we said before, being elect is not necessarily even good news. Here it's very concrete that just because someone is chosen to speak doesn't mean they can't be led astray. We see this happen with Peter. Peter says all the correct things in Acts, but then Paul has to correct him in Galatians because now He's going against his own words. A false teaching can take root at any time, and this is what one must guard against. Remember, the eclectos, the eclectic flock, right? You have to think about it in terms of a flock of people around the shepherd, are gathered by the voice of the shepherd. It's the content of what he speaks that constitutes the flock. It's not the flock. It doesn't have an identity, as we said last week. So when you understand that this is the operating metaphor for the elect, you also understand how fragile it is. Because if I'm with the sheep and I'm the shepherd and I'm saying, follow me, we're going to find food over here in this pasture. But then another person comes along, an imposter, and says, hey, just over the hill at that encampment, there's plenty of food. It's very likely that some from among the elect would say, why should I trust the shepherd that we're going to go graze over in that pasture when just around the corner there's food? And they go and suddenly they find themselves in the military encampment of the Romans. Now what? That's the idea. If you understand it this way, then you begin to see that the elect aren't special. They're fortunate in the sense that they hear the voice of the shepherd, but that's no guarantee that they won't turn their backs on him. But take heed. Behold, I have told you everything in advance. So now you know how it's going to go down. Now you know what's going to happen. So study scripture. Take heed. Be prepared. So that, as he said at the beginning of the chapter, when you're put in front of the persecutor, 
you will know what to say. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. This is a theme that's picked up in the prophets all over the place. Well, it's an apocalypse talking about the end. But notice how the end reverses the beginning. In the beginning, what did God do? God created light and God set the sun and the moon into the heavens. And in those days, at the end, it then reversed. The whole creation then comes to an end. This is how we have to understand God as really holding the beginning and the end in the palm of his hand. And so these images that are used often in the prophets are of God owning the entire heavens. He can manipulate the entire heavens because he created it himself like an artisan. As you carve a statue, you can decide, mm, I'm going to take a little bit off here and a little bit off there. Or you can say enough and you can throw the whole thing in the trash. You can do whatever you want when you're the sculptor. And this is how we have to understand God. So what Mark is doing is he's starting off on the close frame. Okay, when you go in front of the magistrate, then he pulls back. Then there's going to be people who say there are different messiahs. There are different Christs. Then he pulls back to the ultimate layer, which is God who owns the entire heavens and the earth. And at that time, what you know as creation is going to be turned upside down. If the Lord is speaking from the end of history, which is the perspective of the Bible, this is very important, the point you're making about the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. If the Lord is speaking from that vantage point, and everything is in the palm of his hand, then when the abomination of desolation happens, it's coming from him. He holds all of it. He brings all of it. He comes with full control and full power. This is very in my ears as Achillean, especially as you go into verse 25 and 26, because it's a reminder that you want to think that the false Christ has some kind of authority. You want to believe ultimately that Caesar has some kind of power because Caesar is the superlative false Christ in the New Testament. But you need to remember that the God of Abraham is the God above all the gods in Ezekiel. And incidentally, that's how he's presented in Job as well. It's a very important point that there are all these other powers, but all of these powers function on the whim of the one God who emerges from the biblical tradition. So while your world ends as you're pulled up against the magistrates, understand that the whole creation is going to end anyway in the same way that it began. Don't think of it as this is the end times. Again, I, I want to make this point. People think about it like it's the actual end times. We keep saying no. Because when you deal with God, you are dealing with the beginning and the end. That's the point you're making. That's the point that needs to sink in. You are speaking as one voice into the ocean when you deal with God. So how can you then, as a human being, try to contemplate eternity? God sets eternity in man's heart, but he can't grasp it. We keep going back to Ecclesiastes. You are messing with a scope beyond the ability of even an astrophysicist to comprehend mathematically when you're dealing with God. The alpha and the omega means the system is beyond your reach. You can't control it, let alone understand it. But you do have to contend with it when 
the Lord brings his judgment to bear. They will see, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Again, the Lord is coming, and as we said, even the divine court, sons of the Most High, all of you, will still fall like any prince, because there is one authority. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, this is classic Ezekielian imagery. And of course, Richard, we've said many times in many ways in many lectures and classes that we all know that something powerful and glorious, because in Hebrew, kabod means something substantial and weighty, can't possibly ride on the clouds. So we're talking about the authority and the power of God. We're talking about the totality of the scope of his hegemony. But yet, it's so light that it rides upon the clouds. What does that mean? It means, once again, that God is using the language of power that Caesar uses, because that's the language that silly human beings understand. But in the end, that power might not function the same way as Caesar's power. The power is reversed because you have the sons of God, the powers in heaven, fallen, and you have the one who is crucified, the son of man, who is then exalted with glory and power. Again, like I said, it's a new creation in that the order of things that you understand how things function are going to be turned upside down. And so for the reader, what this forces you to do is understand that what you are seeing with your eyes does not suffice. You are not seeing the whole picture. Your eyes are not big enough to see the whole picture. There's something else that's going on that you can only grasp through your ears and through your hearing. And so God is forcing a whole new paradigm onto creation where people like Jesus, people who speak the word and are killed in front of the magistrates, will then receive power and glory. And they're receiving power and glory now if you have ears to hear, not eyes to see, but if you have ears to hear. What's the only thing that packs a punch and that could even co-opt material power, but yet could float on the clouds because it has no substance. It's a teaching. So don't fall in the trap of saying that since Jesus is weak, he must be weak. You're missing the point. Or since Jesus is weak, that means this is about weakness. You're missing the point. The gospel is about the power of the teaching which co-opts and usurps at the same time the power of man in order to serve the teaching. This is why you can talk about power and glory riding upon the clouds. It's not a philosophical conundrum. It's a plain explanation of the function of the teaching in the world. Because who has ever seen or heard of someone speaking a word and knocking out an army. Nobody. Because as a physical phenomenon, it doesn't work that way. But if you don't think that someone can speak a word and knock out an army, you do not understand the power of God in Scripture. And he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. And the angel, as we've said many times, is the apostle, the messenger, the one who brings the good news. Blessed are the feet, Richard, of the ones who bring the good news. 
And of course they gather the elect from the four corners, from the four winds, because the gospel goes out to the four corners of the earth. Remember, again, the elect are only there in order to speak the Lord's word. That's why they're there. That's why this whole extended passage is one single passage. It's relating the ones who go in front of the magistrate and do not speak their own words, but speak the words that the Holy Spirit puts in their mouth. And here, gathering the elect from the four winds to the uttermost ends of the heavens. It's not them. They're only them because of the word. As you said, the shepherd takes the sheep wherever his voice goes. And God in the heavens now brings the elect together where he is, which is the heavens. As you said, you can't recognize that unless the human word in your head is usurped by the divine word that comes in through the air. Now, learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. And we touched on this when we dealt with the fig tree earlier in Mark. It's already too late when you see the leaves on the tree. Summer has already arrived. The time for harvest is past. It's very ominous. That means that when the Lord comes holding the Alpha and the Omega in his hand, when he comes to show you that his Father in heaven is not mocked, when that moment comes, it's too late. It's akin to the many parables of the kingdom in Matthew. Beautiful parables where you keep having this recurring theme that it's too late, it's too late. The thief comes in the middle of the night. If he comes in the middle of the night and you're not keeping watch, meditating on the precepts of the Lord, you're finished. Why this theme of it being too late now? Because Jesus is giving them an advantage by telling them ahead of the time that there's still time to study scripture. Remember, if you're hearing Mark, there's still time. It's when you get to the end of Mark that you should be afraid. But there's still hope now because you can still prepare. With an agricultural mind, you know when the rhythms of nature are suited for agriculture. When you have a scriptural mind, you understand when the rhythm of scripture is ripe for the harvest. And so Mark is trying to get the people who understand agriculture to understand the ultimate harvest, that they understand what's coming. And the parable we saw of the fig tree earlier, when Jesus saw the fig tree that wasn't putting forth fruit because it wasn't time, he withered it. The fig tree is in the palm of God's hand and understands what time it is naturally. If you're listening to this word and you're letting this word penetrate you, you understand what the time is. So be ready. Now, you and I, as we've expressed multiple times, if not every time, the time is now. Judgment is now. The word is judging you now. And so if you have scriptural ears, you know that if there's a shooting, it's because the time is now. If there's peace, you know that the time is now. If there's starvation, you know the time is now. Let your ear be attentive to the word of God. It's the prophetic keros, the now, the opportunity, the moment, right? And again, we've said this, it bears repeating. You have in the scroll of the prophets, like Isaiah, 
what people recognize as a pattern of consolation and judgment, consolation and judgment, consolation and judgment. And people read it as though it's step one, step two, step one, step two. Theologians love to argue that it's death and resurrection because it's an easy way to explain away this pattern in Isaiah. But what's actually happening is that you are presented two timelines. It's like science fiction. You're given an opportunity. This is the moment. You could go this way on the path or that way on the path. If you go this way, there'll be hope for Israel. If you go this way, there'll be destruction. And that's what Jesus is doing. Scripture is living on the edge, always with a sense of urgency that when it comes to you, it presents you with a choice. And even if you make the wrong choice, it comes back around and presents the choice again. It never gives up on you. You have a choice between left and right, between the word of the Lord and the word of destruction. Choose, 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 choose wisely. It's much more merciful than the Wachowski brothers. The Wachowski brothers only let you choose once, red pill, blue pill. Scripture comes around every verse, red pill, blue pill, red pill, blue pill. Judgment, mercy, judgment, mercy. You choose by how you act. And if you choose to go with a word besides the word that Jesus is giving to you, you're living in the matrix where Caesar is firmly planted on his throne for the next thousand years. Everything is going to function as it is right now. Caesar is going to continue to promise more and more prosperity. You're going to receive more and more prosperity, and you hope that this reality exists forever and ever and ever in the palm of Caesar's hand. So what alternative God is presenting is one where this reality ends. Beware those who are comfortable and rich, because this will end, and it's all going to fall apart. But this is good news for the poor. This is bad news for the powerful. And so this is why you have to choose the word that you're going to follow, the word that you're going to put trust in, not the one you believe, the one you trust in. And this is why it's hard for those of us living in an affluent, successful, powerful country to receive the gospel. Because we hear this news that the status quo is going to come to an end. It makes us uncomfortable because we like the status quo. But when someone who is disenfranchised Here's this news. When someone hears that the reign of Caesar is going to come to an end, who suffers under the reign of Caesar, the gospel is good news. People say it's good news in general, and then they change the content of the gospel and their theology to make it sound good in their context. But the gospel is only good news when you are the one who is persecuted, when you are the one who is suffering. This is why Amos was rejected when he brought the Lord's message to Israel because things were going fine in Israel. Who's this pesky prophet, by the way, who happens to be a picker of figs? Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. The time is now. The time is now. The time is now. If you are scriptural, you live in a perpetual state of patient impatience. Patient in the sense that you have to continually be merciful with people, but impatient because you are compelled by scripture to demand action of yourself and of those around you, not action as you see fit, but the action that's demanded by the text. The time to take money out of your pocket and give it to the beggar is not tomorrow. It is now. And it's not tomorrow because 
all of this can end in the twinkling of God's eye. And that's what we have to understand. In the twinkling of God's eye, that beggar on the side of the road is going to be one of the elect called into the heavens and running the show alongside Jesus, as far as you know. This is what's dangerous, is that we have to recognize that this order that we see, we have to act as if it's already the new order, which can come at any time. The time to submit to your wife, the time to serve your children, the time to do whatever you can to build community and to help others, the time to love your neighbor, the time to give up your ego in Scripture is now. And that has beautiful practical implications for all aspects of life because what you find when you actually pay attention to Scripture and start to think this way is that you become productive in general. You realize that there is no tomorrow, that if you're going to do something, you needed to start yesterday. It's very important because human beings console themselves with self-rationalization all the time. We procrastinate everything, and Scripture is teaching us not to procrastinate. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, I've heard scholars talk about this in universities, about how Mark really expected that Jesus was going to come right away and all this was going to happen, and it never did, so it must mean the Bible's not true. No! No, that's not what it means. It means that you don't understand what Mark is saying in verse 30, because who's listening to the podcast that isn't going to face difficult choices in life? Who's listening to the podcast that isn't going to have the opportunity to testify and to serve the teaching of God or to betray the teaching of God in every moment of their life? Who now, who's living now today at this hour, won't one day come to the hour of their death, which is their last opportunity to choose between the Lord's mercy or to choose judgment by forsaking his instruction? Who doesn't have that choice? Of course all of this will come to pass for this generation because it comes to pass for every generation. Scripture gives us a lens through which we see our world. And if we are not living as if this is happening tomorrow, then we're not going to be following the word. We're not taking the word seriously. If we assume that this is going to happen maybe for our grandkids or great-grandkids, maybe a generation after. What's the hurry? This is all about the urgency. The urgency is what matters. Just as when you see the sprig come out of the fig tree, you know that it's happening. Now, do you know if summer is coming in one week or three weeks? You might not know that, but you know it's coming, and it's coming immediately, and you're going to have to act. But every farmer knows that as soon as you know that summer is coming, it's time to plow. As soon as summer is coming, you plow so you can get the seeds in the ground because you don't have time to waste. One time my father-in-law, who was a farmer, it rained and rained and rained when it was time for plowing. So what did he have to do? As soon as it stopped raining, he plowed for 36 hours straight. People brought him food on the tractor because there was no time. He had to plow now. If he didn't plow now, then there would be no harvest. This is how we have to function. And this point about the Lord coming with the Alpha and the Omega in his hand is 
critical to truly understanding what's going on here. Because while we can't grasp eternity, the Lord holds eternity in his hands. Eternity for him is just a thing. It's not a difficult concept beyond his scope because he stands outside of it. He sees everything. He rolls up the heavens like a tent, which means that he's giving you the foresight, even though you can't grasp the scope. He's teaching you that everything is dust and gets blown away. Hable, breath, it's temporary. Man's days are as grass. He's giving you that perspective even though you don't have it so that you could act on that knowledge with wisdom. That's why it's using this apocalyptic language. The function of apocalyptic language in scripture is not to predict the future because we all know how it ends. The function of apocalyptic language in scripture is to remind you that you need to change how you live now, today. It's dealing with now, not with the future. And that's why all these theologies that get all wrapped up in a knot about the future are intellectually stimulating, maybe even emotionally satisfying, if you like conspiracy theories or crime mysteries, but they are of no value. Because notice in all of these theologies and all of these theories, it's always about what's wrong with everybody else. It's never about how I need to change now. Unless someone is like storing gold in their basement or something. But even then, that's selfishness. What you should be doing is saying, since I know that the Lord holds life and death in the palm of his hand, since I know that he holds everyone accountable and that he controls everything, and since I know that the one who has all of this in the palm of his hand is giving me a word of instruction, Maybe I should just follow his word of instruction now. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And this harkens back to the beginning of this section of the very practical, real problem that the believers, that the followers of Jesus have, which is when they're called in front of the magistrates, that they must speak only God's word. And through all this passage, the heavens and the earth, everything that you see will pass away. Even the sun, moon, and stars will pass away, but the word will not. If you speak the word in front of the magistrates, you are holding the most powerful force in the universe in your hand, in your mouth more specifically. When you have that force, that power in your mouth, what then will you be afraid of? You can't be afraid of someone who calls you up in front of them because they're a part of the heavens and the earth. The sons of God are going to fall. What do you think about these magistrates? They're just Caesar's flunkies. Caesar's just a flunky to these sons of men and they're going to fall. There is no power in this world stronger than the word, than the word that God preaches the word that Jesus preaches, the word that Jesus is trying to get out to the people, there's nothing stronger than that. If only the disciples knew that at the beginning when their job was to spread this word like the seed. There's nothing that will withstand time like this word. So when you speak, not with your words, but only the word of God, then the most powerful, eternal, 
heavenly, spiritual even, force is present. And that's what you have to do with the caveat that they're not your words, but God's words. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.